The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. So, now that we've done a few hundred episodes of this podcast, I feel compelled to look across the literary universe and think about the writers I haven't covered. The bright stars in the sky, some of the very brightest, who have not yet been subject to the sustained gaze of the little earthling, the puny earthling, named Jack Wilson in his History of Literature podcast. Sometimes I discover a new author or an overlooked writer or a new angle on a classic work. The subject matter calls out to me, and I respond, Yes, yes, time to dive in. Other authors have always been there. They're out there waiting, as patient as the hills or mountains. <laughs> Even more patient than those hills, aren't they? Fixtures on the landscape calling to us through the distance, standing there. I am here to be climbed, Jack, when you are ready. And you know the heights to which you can travel, on me. You know the air you will breathe, up here. Today's subject is a little like that, and yet he came from almost nothing. Not nothing, as is often thought. Almost nothing. And he died before he turned twenty-six. A meteor, a comet, in life, perhaps, in poetry, in our poetic firmament, in the heavens of poetry, written at the very highest level, we can call him a bright star, which, of course, is what he himself called Shakespeare. Keats looked back to Shakespeare after first going through Spencer, which made him want to be a poet, and reading contemporaries like Lee Hunt and Wordsworth and Coleridge, and eventually Byron and Shelley and many others. He liked a lot of that poetry. The ideas were there. He was absorbing it all, admiring much of it. But in the end, it was Shakespeare for John. Shakespeare, who had the kind of immersion in life that he craved, and the deep feeling for love and for death and for the sensuous business of existence, a bright star. Now, I should tell you that the sticklers out there will say, Jack, 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 you got it wrong again. Bright star? He didn't call Shakespeare the bright star. He was talking about love, his love for Fanny Braun. She herself believed it was about her. She copied the poem into the gift that John had given her, a copy of Dante's Inferno. Well, that may be. The poem is a beautiful poem, a love poem, and Keats did two things exceedingly well. Let me make that three things, except I should probably make it ten. Let me start with three. He wrote about love. He wrote about death. He wrote about poetry, the poetic imagination, and the poetic soul. All three were hugely present in his life and on his mind and in his art. And so he turned to Shakespeare. He wrote poems about what it was like to read King Lear. Bright Star, the poem that begins with those words, was written in his copy of a Shakespeare volume. They were in a sonnet form, a Shakespearean sonnet. When chasing butterflies, one carries a net. When chasing the transmutation of love into poetry, one uses a Shakespearean sonnet. I can already see how difficult this episode is going to be. I've delivered four or five paragraphs worth of thoughts, and I have a thousand footnotes already. Things I want to say, things I want to return to, comparisons I want to make, details I want to give, quotes, lines of poetry, sonnets, themes. I'm not sure there's a life that's been more important to my own, drawing from literature, of course, than the life of John Keats. I have a lot on my mind. But wandering around isn't going to help us, is it, dear listeners? We'll need a bit of order. So let's do this. Let's say this isn't the only episode on John Keats. Let's plan to do a few. We won't treat this subject like a comet streaking through the sky, ours to fix in our memory. We'll treat it like the bright star, burning forever, as he himself described love. I think this is love. I'm happy to believe it was his love for Fanny Braun. Though, as with all good poets, it becomes universal. I also think it's about Shakespeare. Shakespeare, the bright star Keats was responding to on those pages of his book, about as far back for Keats as Keats is to us. 200 years separating us and Keats, 200 years 
more or less, separating Keats and Shakespeare. My own copy of Keats's poems, which I've had for close to 30 years, cites Matthew Arnold on the back cover. Keats is with Shakespeare, said Arnold. The book says that if faced with a desert island choice of poets, a reader of English might well choose Shakespeare, Milton, and Keats, and says, this is from 1973, my copy, it's the Everyman paperback version, it says that Shakespeare, Milton, and Keats is, quote, their generally agreed order of importance, and they form a nucleus around which other poetic constellations revolve. End quote. Constellations. There we go again. Our bright stars. Shakespeare, Milton, Keats. Shakespeare at age 26 was just getting started. The Henry VI plays, those seem to have been finished by then, but Hamlet, Lear, Othello, Macbeth, the long poems, the sonnets, those were all years in his future. Milton had written a few poems before 26. He wrote his first published poem on Shakespeare when he was in his early 20s. But he too was an older, wiser, more mature, more polished poet as he aged. His masterpiece, Paradise Lost, was begun when he was 50. Keats never lived to be 26. Everything he wrote was finished by then. Had death come for Shakespeare and Milton as early as it did for Keats, we would not know their names today. We would not know their names. We would not have their work. We are lucky it did not come for them so soon. And we are lucky that Keats' star blazed as bright as it did for the brief period he was here. How did this happen? What did he write about? Who was he? Should we celebrate or mourn? Or, as our guest Bob Holman put it, should we take the poet's answer and do both? John Keats, the bright star and the comet, his life flashing before our eyes, making us blink, his poetry standing in the heavens and burning eternally. Today, on the History of Literature. <laughs> Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. John Keats. I could talk for an hour on a single poem and still not scratch the surface with this guy. What a poet. What a life. Let's try to pick up a few loose ends while we go. I feel like I've spilled a big box of screws and they are scattering all over the floor like I've dropped money. I had a big bag of coins I was walking around with and somehow I gashed it. And now there are Shiny, valuable things just rolling all over in every direction. I want to go to the bank. That was my destination. Make a deposit of these things. But I can't help gathering everything up. I drop to my knees like a desperate beggar, clutching at all of the shininess. I've always been like that with Keats, both the man and his life and his poetry. He was one of the first major poets I ever read back in college. Ode on a Grecian Urn which we will get to today, I promise. We won't cover all the poems, but we will cover that one. I'm saving a few others for later, but not Ode on a Grecian Urn. That will be a centerpiece today. I hate to promise multiple episodes on an author because I don't always get to them. The winds change direction, and I have so many other topics to cover. Beloved authors, fascinating authors, and the promised episodes don't materialize. Luckily, readers rarely seem to notice. Let's start with an email from Courtney. Subject, Flannery O'Connor, episode 59. Hello, Jack. I just listened to your Flannery O'Connor podcast episode, and you teased a part two where you would discuss a good man is hard to find, but I can't seem to find it. <laughs> Maybe a good episode is hard to find. I assumed it would be the next episode, 60, but that's about endings. Could you please let me know where I can find part two? I'm aching to listen to it. Oh, 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 you are not alone, Courtney. I probably get an email like this once a week, and I have to fall all over myself apologizing because I promised that part two, and it's been weighing on me ever since. I am aching to let you listen to it. You looked at episode 60, it wasn't there, and maybe some listeners have waited through 147 episodes, waiting patiently, 
Some listeners are not so patient, but most are. Waited through all these episodes, as I have not broken my promise exactly, because there's still time, but I haven't yet fulfilled it. Dear Courtney, thank you for your email, and forgive me. But with Keats, I feel good about the promise. I feel like I can do multiple episodes. I can promise that because I'm just bursting at the seams with stuff to talk about. I haven't even read a line of his poetry yet, and a hundred have occurred to me, trying to get to all of it. Let's hear another email from Scott. Hi, Jackie. I've been following your podcast for a while and listened to eps by theme or time period. Now I'm getting around to more contemporary authors, and I listened to Flannery O'Connor way back in episode 59. You said you were doing a second episode. Did it never materialize? Thanks, and looking forward to more listening. (laughs) Scott, a thousand apologies for leaving you hanging. I've got to put one on my list. Flannery O'Connor Part 2. It's been on my list. I'll move it up. It shall materialize. Hopefully. A couple of quick others. One from our old friend Irving. Hey, Jack. Hope all is well since we last chatted. Just wanted to wish you a very big congratulations for making it to your 200th episode. I've listened to every single episode since day one, and I'm so happy that you're still doing this. The history of literature is truly a light in my life. It's super ironic that the 200th episode is on the Magic Mountain because I literally just finished reading it the other day. Why did I start reading it? Because Mike Palindrome wouldn't stop mentioning it. And so, alas, I finally read it. God bless that man. Wishing you and your family a very blessed holiday and New Year's. Warmly and gratefully, Irving. Irving, the early listener, the one who sent the Irving list long ago. Who has time to do two episodes on Flannery O'Connor when the Irving List is out there? Standing like a beacon, calling the literary ships to shore. So many writers to cover. So many great books. We did three episodes on Joyce one Christmas. I remember that. We've done, I don't know how many on Shakespeare. Probably six or seven at least. Two on Chekhov and counting. Jane Austen needs another one. I've had Emma on my nightstand for over a year. Poor Flannery. We'll get to her again. But first, I think we'll have a couple on John Keats. One more email, and then we'll really dive in. Subject, William Blake's podcast. Dear Jack, it never ceases to fascinate me how rich literature always proves to be. As a teacher of English literature, I sometimes think that I know much, but then I realize I know but a little. Thank you for the interesting portrayal of Blake's life. I am a big fan. He is indeed timeless. Loved how you introduced the tiger with a historical account of the time period. I enjoyed the podcast much. William Najjar from Jordan. Right. That country in the Middle East. Jordan. Wow. Thank you so much for the email. And yes, you are right about Blake and you are right about the richness of literature. Let's take a quick break and come back with a wholehearted dive into the life and the poetry. The beautiful, magical, miraculous poetry of John Keats. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. John Keats was born in 1795, somewhere in London, in the district known as Moorgate, and which today we know as the city center and central business district. If I'd had to guess, I'd say he was born in the spring. Something about Keats always seems fresh to me, like the singing of birds, like the lushness of a tree with thick green leaves, or grass with dew. A nice birthday in March or April or May would work well for Keats, but no, the gods were not so kind to give us that neat parallel. He was born on Halloween of all days, and perhaps that's appropriate too. One of his greatest poems was an ode to autumn, and he was a person and poet for whom death was always close at hand. Halloween is about death, not the spooky monsters, that's not what I associate with Keats, but the death of falling leaves churning into the soil, the death of disease and cold and damp, the death that comes too soon, mowing down all in its path, even before the harshness of winter. Winter might be deathly, but fall is about early death, the onset of death, the dying in the fullness of life. The days are still long, the temperature is moderate, the air and weather are beautiful, and yet here are the trees starting to cast aside their leaves, and here is our God casting aside the lives one by one, dying of accident and disease. He was born in humble circumstances, his father an ostler, a man who took care of the horses at an inn. The inn was called the Swan and Hoop. It's had a name change now. It's called the Globe. Keats thought he was born there, but records are inconclusive. It's worth a visit, nevertheless. The Globe Pub proudly touts its array of delicious sharers and its succulent burgers and says, The famous poet John Keats was born in a stable next door. A stable next door. Not even given a room at the inn. Poor John. He's always had his origins downplayed. He wasn't as poor as people seem to think. He had a hard life, yes. His parents couldn't afford to send him to the toniest schools. But he did go to school, and he was studying to be a doctor, a surgeon. We'll have more on that in a minute. His father worked his way up and became the manager of the Swan and Hoop. We can tell a lot about the people who dismissed Keats's origins as being too humble. Byron, for example, was dismissive. And famously, Keats was lumped into the Cockney School, along with his friend Lee Hunt, and the great critic William Hazlitt. Only Keats was actually a cockney among those three. What the critics had in mind was a back-of-the-hand categorization, a way of putting down these poets. Didn't go to the best schools, didn't have the best education, didn't mingle with the upper crust. They were upstarts, these crows, and now they were trying to claim poetry for themselves. Poetry, the high-minded. Poetry, the rarefied air. Who were they to breathe it? Didn't they have horses to handle? We see this with Shakespeare, too. All the questions about authorship come down to that. Well, maybe not all, but that's the origin of the authorship questions. When you look at the most passionate advocates of the Shakespeare didn't really write the plays arguments, they're usually high-class snobs who can't take the idea that someone from the masses, some lower-born person, actually surpassed all the wealthy and privileged kids with all their advantages. It's not that different from the way white people in the 18th century had a hard time accepting the intelligence of people with darker skin. It's not just a curiosity. It's not just some kind of skin color prejudice, or in Keats's case, classism. It's a threat to a system of power, a threat to a way of life. When you tell yourself lies and you become invested in believing those lies yourself, figures who don't fit your narrative become awfully inconvenient. Jesse Owens wins four gold medals right in front of Hitler's nose, showing the world the emptiness of the claims of the master race. Shakespeare and Keats show that genius does not belong only to the wealthy. It might not belong to them at all. I have to say that this is one of the first things I learned about Keats, and it was a hugely important moment for me, not just because he had humble origins, although I guess maybe there was some of that. I came from my little 
rural farm and factory town like a minnow who had to jump in with the sleek sharks of New England private schools. But it's not so much that I identified with Keats, although I did try to write a poem like his, which I talked about in our bad poetry episode, number 62. I was besotted with Keats, but that came a little later. No, the important moment for me came when I took a Romanticism course, and the professor, Professor James Chandler, who later joined me as a guest on our show on Frank Capra and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, introduced Keats by talking about the movie Breaking Away. Have you seen Breaking Away? It's not as common as Bull Durham or Hoosiers or The Natural, but it is a great sports movie. Not just sports, it's about life. It's a town and gown story set at a university. There's a quarry nearby, and a lot of the dads in the town work in the quarry. The university students all look down on the townies, and one of these guys, the child of a blue-collar worker, decides he's going to be better than that. Better than the university students. Not just as good, that's not his goal, but better. He's not going to aspire to being what they are. University students who came from some white American privileged background, he's going above them. He's going to be European, Italian. He's going to tap into that culture. That's superior to these Midwestern white dudes. He's culturally advanced. So he speaks Italian at the dinner table, and he starts wearing Italian clothes and riding a bicycle, just like an Italian athlete. And the story of him training and trying to rise above, it's a beautiful movie, still very watchable. And I had seen this movie and had been struck by it, had rooted for this guy to survive, just as I suppose I myself was wondering where I fit into the world. And here's Professor Chandler who starts out the discussion of John Keats by saying, You know, Keats reminds me of the character in Breaking Away. Instead of riding a bike and speaking Italian, Keats turned to poetry to lift himself above his surroundings. And that was a crucial moment for me. I was so fascinated by this part of Keats's story. He did? He wanted to do that? He wanted to rise above? How well did it work? Can you see that in his poetry? What happened to him? It's a kind of view of literature that made it come alive for me. I wanted to know more about Keats's poetry and more about his life and more about the critical reception he received and whether the poetry he wrote made him happy or satisfied or not any of those things. I wanted to know the history of literature, you might say. So, I once used this same analogy with a co-worker. By the way, he was an incredibly annoying person who seemed to live to be irritating. He was a lawyer who had gone to Yale Law School, and he liked to condescend to everyone around him as being not up to his intellectual level. He was a great one for straw men. Those were like soldiers in his annoying little army. He would say things like, You know how many miles Al Gore flew last year and how much carbon that burned? As if I'm supposed to ignore climate change, thousands of scientists, because of some little dig he had at Al Gore, who's just one freaking person. <laughs> we have billions of people on this planet. We have facts we can all choose to ignore or deal with. It's not even worth my time to talk about a climate change dissenter, about Al Gore and the number of light bulbs he burns at his house. But this smirking guy would act like that. Eh. Acted like that had ended the argument, and he would always say, I'm more left than the Democrats. And then he would go on some rant about Barack Obama, criticizing him from the right. All his arguments were from the right. But he would say, I'm more left than the Democrats. Once I said to him, you know, you always say that, but your policy views are always way out to the right. Always. So in what way are you to the left of the Democrats? What issue? Because I've never heard it from you. And you know what he said? <laughs> Copyright law. Copyright law. Now, I'm pretty independent politically. I tend to root for the underdog, which can sometimes put me on one side and sometimes put me on the other. I like politicians who don't lie and aren't corrupt and don't seize power. I hate authority figures who force us to bow and scrape to them. I'm not as political as some people but I'm pretty well informed. And I could not tell you where Bill Clinton or Barack Obama 
or George Bush or John Kerry or Mitt Romney or Donald Trump stands on copyright law. I couldn't tell you. Elizabeth Warren, I don't know what she thinks of copyright law. My guess is that all those people pretty much go along with whatever Disney wants. I have no idea. I've never heard it discussed in a debate. Texas, healthcare, the size of the military, transgender bathrooms, gay marriage, abortion. All those issues are front and center for every candidate I can think of. Crime, guns, tariffs, trade, but copyright law. So that was this guy trying to win his arguments with his sneering superior tone and throwing things like copyright law in my face. His father never went to college. This was his weakness. His father never went to college. His father was strongly pro-union. His father worked in a factory. And this guy who wanted to live among the rich and suave, the elite upper crust, was kind of a poser. They didn't accept him as one of their own. They thought he was a fraud, boorish, a lout. It was one of the only things I really liked about this guy, that his own father dismissed him as a guy with his head in the clouds who didn't know how the real world worked, and the people he wanted to be among rejected him. So one time, this guy pushed me too far, and I said, have you ever seen the movie Breaking Away? Because you remind me a little of that guy. And I never got to Keats. When I told this guy that I thought he was overcompensating for his working class origins and that instead of speaking Italian and training to be an elite bike racer, he had gone to Yale and thought of himself as an intellectual powerhouse. As soon as I got that far, he shut things down. That wasn't who he wanted to be. He didn't like the analogy at all which turned out to be fine, because he bothered me a lot less. Let's get back to Keats. From the beginning, his life was filled with death. One night, a policeman spotted a riderless horse running through the streets of London. It was a bad omen. Thomas Keats, John's father, had fallen from the horse while returning from a visit to see John and his brother George at school. The fall killed him. He died of a skull fracture. John was eight years old. Six years later, his mother died of tuberculosis. Keats's grandmother had custody now, and she appointed two guardians to look after the children. In one of those horrible twists of fate and the law, a solicitor seems to have defrauded the kids, depriving them of what they were entitled to. Keats should have had about 50,000 pounds in today's money, which his grandfather had left him, and he and his siblings should have shared in 500,000 pounds, in today's money, which his mother left him. The attorney knew about the legacy and had a duty to inform Keats and his siblings, but he didn't. And for the rest of his life, Keats struggled to figure out how he would earn a living and how he would pay for himself and his siblings who were often sick. He struggled to stay out of debt all of his life. Other deaths haunted him as well. Tuberculosis is a common theme running through Keats's life. His brother Tom was struck by it and eventually died. Keats spent much of his adult life nursing him, which of course exposed him to the illness, to the disease. Tuberculosis was not well understood as a communicative disease at this time, and there was no cure for it until the 20th century. His brother George and his wife eventually died from it as well, as did Keats. Keats refused to name it in his letters. It wasn't seen as a germ-based disease as much as a kind of moral failing in those days. There was a stigma to it. It was called consumption, and it was associated with weakness and repressed sexual passion and masturbation. So the life was one of tragedy and death and young death and the awareness of one's likely death. Keats's career was similar. As I mentioned, he didn't go to the famous schools like Eton or Harrow, but he didn't do too poorly. He was sent to a more progressive school in Enfield, which was close to his grandfather's house. He had the good fortune here of meeting a lifelong friend named Charles Cowden Clark, who was the headmaster's son. Clark introduced Keats to Renaissance literature like Tasso and Spencer and Chapman's translations, which we will get to later. Spencer was a huge early influence on Keats. His first 
poem, Keats's first poem, was an imitation slash homage to Spencer. Keats was known for being irascible, volatile, arguing with his classmates, and so on. He had not had an easy time of it. After his mother died, he had to leave school, and he was apprenticed with a surgeon and apothecary. He lived in the attic above the rooms where they performed surgeries. It was a fairly calm period for Keats. His friend Clark called it the most placid time in Keats's life, and there was a feeling of relief among Keats's family members. Keats was training to be what was called a dresser, best viewed as a sort of surgeon's assistant. The job would come with financial security. Keats showed an aptitude for medicine, and he appears to have started with a desire to become a doctor. This would all be for the good, from the family's point of view. Poor young John, who lost his parents at age 8 and age 14, by age 20 was well on his way to becoming a physician. However, he had also been writing poems, and the two pursuits would eventually clash. They competed for his time. Hours he spent studying and training and helping patients were hours he could not spend contemplating the world or writing his poetry. He was inspired by Spencer and new poets like Lee Hunt and Lord Byron, and yet he couldn't write himself, couldn't fulfill his ambitions. His brother George wrote that John, quote, feared that he should never be a poet, and if he was not, he would destroy himself, end quote. While he was wrestling with this, trying to write poems, trying to succeed as a doctor, something happened that was hugely influential. He was called upon to perform a surgical procedure on a patient, let me just stop here for a moment and say that Keats is often associated in our minds with a kind of airy quality, a wispy poet, a weak and frail thing, timid and effete. That's not what this was. This job was brutal and bloody. Surgery without anesthetic. That's the world Keats lived in. He made up pills and potions, dealt with toothaches and so on, and childbirth, but also amputations and bloodletting and other screaming, full-of-pain procedures. Physical agony was close at hand. Death, not much further away. And it was during one of these procedures, we are told, that Keats experienced a moment that changed him. He was cutting into a patient, and he felt a kind of transcendent empathy, so that he felt as if it were his own flesh that was being pierced. He felt the agony as acutely as if it were he himself under the knife. The moment changed him, and not just because it scared him or shocked him or made him squeamish. It changed him because he realized that there was something above bodies, something more important than human machinery. There was imagination and empathy. His mind imagined something vivid and acute and meaningful and powerful, and this imaginative exercise fascinated him and inspired him. The body paled in comparison. Blood would fall, limbs would be hacked off, flesh would be ravaged by disease. But the poetic imagination, that inspiration, that feeling that could inspire something anew in him, that seemed to him like the worthier pursuit. It wasn't a man terrified of death who wanted to make his name to leave a legacy. It was more like a man who had stared death in the face and decided that imagination was perhaps the only thing more powerful. Whether this is the soul, or the muse, or the eternal truth and beauty of poetry, that's still for him to discover. But that's why he left medicine behind. The same year he received his apothecary's license, which would let him practice as a physician, he announced to his guardian that he would be a poet, not a surgeon. It was a good choice, we might say today. He became the famous John Keats, after all, one of the most glorified poets ever. It didn't always appear that way at the time. Keats's books of poetry did not sell well. One estimate I read was that all of his works combined sold fewer than 200 copies in his lifetime. He was savaged by critics. We'll get to that later. He struggled with money as he gave up the earning potential of medicine in exchange for the uncertainties of the poetic life. There were some successes, too, some reasons for optimism. His old friend Charles Cowden Clark introduced him to Lee Hunt, a poet Keats admired, who was also the editor of a magazine called The Examiner. 
Hunt liked Keats and agreed to publish his sonnet, O Solitude, in his magazine. The examiner offices became a place for Keats to hang out and meet other writers and poets. His first volume of poems came out and flopped. They might as well have come out in Timbuktu, said his friend Clark. His publishers didn't exactly stand by him. They said they felt ashamed of having published it. Poor Keats. Here's some early work. Let's listen to it. Here's O Solitude. O Solitude. This is a sonnet, by the way. O Solitude. If I must with thee dwell, let it not be among the jumbled heap of murky buildings. Climb with me the steep, nature's observatory, whence the dell in flowery slopes its river's crystal swell may seem a span. Let me thy vigils keep mongst boughs pavilioned, where the deer's swift leap startles the wild bee from the foxglove bell. But though I'll gladly trace these scenes with thee, Yet the sweet converse of an innocent mind, whose words are images of thoughts refined, is my soul's pleasure. And it sure must be almost the highest bliss of humankind, when to thy haunts two kindred spirits flee. We hear in these early poems almost a kind of imitation, a slavish imitation. This is like the early Beatles writing songs like One After 909 and I saw her standing there. They're trying to be Goffin and King. They're trying to be Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry. They're trying to write songs as good. They haven't yet learned that they can write songs that are better. Keats in this poem is looking for the rhymes and rhythms and word choices that are publishable, if not transcendent. The thought in the poem is adequate, but only just adequate. This is a poem of someone with talent and diligence but not the work of transcendent genius. It's full of promise. We're lucky the promise was recognized by Lee Hunt. And I think Keats himself, he didn't quite get there, even in some better early poems like Sleep and Poetry and I Stood Tiptoe. But he knew what he was after, what he was aspiring to. As we know from his letters, there was enough to encourage him. His letters. He never got credit for his letters in his lifetime, of course, but taken together, they are one of the greatest works of literary criticism and theory in the English language. T.S. Eliot was a great admirer, arguing that they were more mature than Keats was at first, and that what's great about the letters is that you can see Keats, as a poet, grow into the poet that his letters were calling for. I should note here that I'm in the year 1816 or so. Keats was around 21. He only lived for four more years. This is the period, the four-year period, that has made him a household name today. In these years, he had struggles and hardships. He was in love with two women. He wrote letters. He wrote verse, sonnets, a play, some longer works of poetry, some shorter works, and the odes that have made him immortal. He traveled to Scotland and to Rome, and throughout all this, he was aware of sickness and disease, and he believed that he himself would die soon. He was aware that death was around the corner for him. He knew the signs. He was trained to recognize them. When he coughed up blood, he knew the color, he said. It's the color of arterial blood. It's the color that will mark my death. And yet, he believed in poetry. He believed in poetry. He believed in it as deeply as any man who has ever walked the earth, I think. And within a matter of months... He would be writing poems that confirmed his belief, not just to himself. Let's take a quick break and come back with one of those poems, the great poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn. We will read it straight through and then break it down with some analysis after this. Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian, who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals, or of both, in Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these, what maidens loath, what mad pursuit what struggle to escape, what pipes and timbrels, what wild ecstasy. 
Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on. Not to the sensual ear, but, more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Fair youth, beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss. Though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve. She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss. Forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs, that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young. All breathing human passion far above, that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, Leads thou that heifer lowing at the skies, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore, or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. O attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed. Thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. Cold pastoral, when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain. In midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Hmm. Okay, so what's going on here? A speaker, let's call him our poet, is looking at a Grecian urn and finding inspiration. A Grecian urn, you've probably seen pictures of these or seen them in museums. It's an urn ornamented with scenes, with decoration and with scenes. It's thousands of years old, and it inspired Keats, as did ancient Greece. In general, think about the world he lived in. Dark, gloomy London, cold and wet and dreary, his parents dying, everyone around him sick, and he himself living above the surgery. For years he lived that life, walked on the steps. A patient is there, moaning in pain or trembling in fear. They pin his limbs down and start cutting. The patient starts screaming. Blood comes pouring out darkly. It stains the filthy floor. But Greece, land of sunshine and sandals, an ancient culture full of poetry and heroes and gods, the pure thoughts of Plato, the grove where Plato taught Aristotle, the wine and song, the theater, the love, the kisses, the joys, the experiences, the philosophy, the lutes, the life. Why wouldn't Keats want a journey back there? I want to go there now. <laughs> I'll give up my iPhone and my microphone and even my beloved New York Review of Books. I'll go sit in the circle and live and love and breathe that air. I'll be an Athenian listening to stories about the Spartans, maybe arguing about what we should do and what kind of society we want to have, what is love, what is justice, and drink pure water from the urn and gaze on its decorations and think about the stories that have been frozen in time, frozen for all time, not living like poetry, not linear like poetry, not auditory like poetry, but visual and static and beautiful and frozen. Keats had all this bound up in his Grecian urn, just as he'd seen the Elgin marbles, which you could still see today at the British Museum. I saw them a few months ago. They are incredible. They're still powerful today, even our even in our world of mechanical reproduction, when we can see photos and videos of them whenever we want. They must have been absolutely breathtaking in Keats's London. The Elgin marbles, well, they're a little controversial. 
As John Oliver puts it, the British Museum is also the world's greatest crime scene. If that's your view, you would say that the Earl of Elgin was the primary thief. He had his agents go to the Parthenon and remove about half of the remaining statuary and ship it all back to Britain, where it arrived between 1801 and 1812, basically the period of Keats's childhood. Even at the time, this was a controversial move. Byron called it an act of looting, an act of vandalism. Elgin claimed he had some paper from the ruling government that let him do it. After some criticism, he sold the statues to the British government in 1816 when they went on display to the public. They show horses and centaurs fighting and other majestic scenes of drama and celebration. Keats wrote a poem about them called On Seeing the Elgin Marbles. Listen to the poem. You can hear the agony that a young man, aware of his mortality, in love with poetry, uncertain of his own abilities, in love with beauty, trying to fill his life with beauty, listen to this beautiful gasp of a poem. My spirit is too weak. Mortality weighs heavily on me like unwilling sleep, and each imagined pinnacle and steep of godlike hardship tells me I must die, like a sick eagle looking at the sky. Yet tis a gentle luxury to weep, that I have not the cloudy winds to keep fresh for the opening of the morning's eye. Such dim conceived glories of the brain bring round the heart an undescribable feud. So do these wonders a most dizzy pain that mingles Grecian grandeur with the rude wasting of old time with a billowy mane, a sun, a shadow of a magnitude. Oh. That is almost too beautiful for me. He looks at the Grecian grandeur, the marbles, and feels the heaviness of time, the time that will cut him down, that weighs him down even now, since he's living on borrowed time. He knows he will die, this speaker, Keats. Mortality weighs heavily on me like unwilling sleep, he says. The path ahead is full of climbs, climbs of godlike hardship, tells me I must die like a sick eagle looking at the sky. Oh, my God. Haven't you ever felt that way? Like you know you're going to die. We all do. And you'll never achieve greatness. You can only be close to it. You can only imagine it. You can only wonder at it. A sick eagle looking at the sky. What is it like to be a sick eagle looking at the sky, staring, knowing what's up there? knowing what is possible, and yet knowing that you are not going to ascend. Not all eagles get to ascend. Stick ones, sick ones, stay put. As do humans, of course. And isn't the sky kind of beautiful nevertheless? Isn't our imagination capable of taking us there? But isn't that sort of a double-edged sword? Because we can see the sky, can imagine it, but we can't get there. That's the beauty of Keats. That's the agony of Keats, too. And the beauty kind of flows out of the agony. He says he's going to die, as we all are. But he feels it with every minute of every day because he knows his time is limited. There's a rude wasting of old time. Old time. Used up time. Time we're all battling with. Time that beats us all. It's older than us. And it will outlive us. That's the dizzy pain he feels when he thinks about these wonders. That's how I read this poem anyway. That you feel the burden of death even as you live, and life becomes more beautiful. And art, when it's beautiful, makes you feel not only the joy of life, but the agony that life will someday be over. It's knowledge that makes this happen, our self-awareness, our awareness of our own mortality. But that leads to a higher truth. A truth not bound by logic or reason, the truth of the spirit, the truth of the soul. As he puts it in this poem, it's the brain conceiving, dimly conceiving glories, which bring to the heart an undescribable feud. It's all mixed together, beauty and poetic imagination, beauty and the awareness of death, beauty and the inevitability of time, beauty in the mind, beauty in the heart, Beauty in the soul, beauty in life. 
beauty and the human spirit, beauty and truth. That's where we go now to our Grecian urn with its famous last words. Some people hate the ending. They think Keats got it wrong. There's more to beauty than truth, and there's more to truth than beauty. And they insist, this is what's funniest of all, they insist that other people are reading Keats wrong. (laughs) Well, maybe they are, and maybe they aren't. Maybe this is part of the beauty. I personally find the poem very moving, full of complexity, full of this expression of what might be impossible to explain. Nothing that comments upon these lines is as powerful as the words themselves. They are as silent as a statue. They speak for themselves, for what they say and what they don't say what they suggest, what they imply. Criticize them at your peril, ye critics. They are likely smarter than you. They anticipate your criticism and brush your objections aside with their steady, statuesque presence. The words here in the final lines embody what they are exploring. It's not meaning. It's the quest for meaning. You can focus on the destination and criticize that. But if you do, you will miss the journey which is where Keats found meaning. He anticipated this in a letter to his friend Bailey. I am certain, he said, of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. What imagination seizes as beauty must be truth. End quote. What imagination seizes as beauty must be truth. But let's go back to the start of the poem and see how Keats gets there. Ode on a Grecian Urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time. Beautiful words here. The urn is quiet, silent, the product of not being able to speak, just a display and slow, slow time. Ancient, in other words. It's not a song someone just sang or even a painting someone just made. It's not ephemeral like a sunset. It's quiet. It's just here, it's just present, this urn, and it draws its strength from silence and slow time. Not old time now, as we saw in the Elgin Marbles poem, but slow time. That's a beautiful change. It's the modification a genius would make. Time isn't just old, it's slow. It moves forward slowly. It accretes. And this stands in the middle of that, silently, bearing witness, this urn, offering itself to us through the slow travel of months and years and centuries. Sylvan historian, who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme, what leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals, or of both, in Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these, what maidens loath? What mad pursuit, what struggle to escape, what pipes and timbrels, what wild ecstasy. Now, here's Keats comparing this urn with poetry. We can prattle away, he says, with our words, but that cannot compare with the history that's told in this image, that just stands here silently, telling us the story, or even if we're not looking at the deities or mortals, but just the leaf-fringed legend. There's beauty there, too. But he sees more, of course. He sees movement. He sees a mad pursuit, gods and maidens, struggling to escape and listening to music that we cannot hear, falling into wild ecstasy. You can see it in their limbs. You can see it on their faces. You can imagine it. It's a a scene that's frozen in time. As he says, Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on, not to the sensual ear, but, more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Wow. Keats doesn't say, I wish I could hear the music, I'm longing to hear the music, or if I think hard, I can hear the music. He says, it's more beautiful that we cannot hear the music. Why would that be? Why would ditties of no tone be better for the spirit? Why would unheard melodies be sweeter than heard melodies? Because they are timeless, because they are flawless, because they are in our imagination, 
And because by being silent, they are filled with something deeper and richer, just as life is richer and deeper for being filled with death. Now, he starts looking at the pictures and telling us what he sees, addressing himself to the figures on the urn. Fair youth, beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never Never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve. She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss. Forever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Here he's reflecting on the frozen images, arrested in midstream. The lover can't reach her. He wants to kiss her. He never will be able to. How horrible is that? Love will forever be unfulfilled. The longing to kiss her will forever be denied him. But look at what you have, young lover. You have eternity. You've been captured in that moment when you're about to kiss her, the exciting, anticipatory moment where you are in love and she's beautiful and all is right with the world and all is about to get even better. That's your moment. That's what you have forever. Take it. Seize it. Embrace it. The rest of us get the kiss, maybe. We also get the slap in the face, maybe, or the turning away or the falling out of love. The rest of us get old and withered and diseased. We bury our loved ones. That's what we have in store for us. Yes, we get the kiss if we're lucky and we learn it's not enough. It wasn't perfect as we had hoped. Even if it is perfect, It ends. We know the pain of it ending and the pain of what comes after. Ah, happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu. And happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting, and forever young, all breathing human passion far above. It leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. This is some more of the same idea. Time does not pass. Trees will stay green. Spring will stay here. The songs will be new forever. I like the repetition here. He has happy melodist, happy love, more happy, happy love. It's insistent, that word happy. It's urgent. And maybe carries with it a little of the manic frenzy that the speaker feels. It's not just love. It's happy love. It's happy, happy, happy love. Happy love might be what we feel on our way to kiss our lover. Happy, happy, happy love, exclamation mark, is what the figures on the urn feel. Because the happiness never ends. Or maybe I should say... Never, never, never ends. Now he looks at a different set of figures. A religious sacrifice is shown. He says, Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leads thou that heifer lowing at the skies, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? And, little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. I think this is beautiful here. It's not just happiness, but pious sentiment. It's people whose hearts we will never know, but they're not just animals trying to kiss one another, trying to kiss or fight. They are complex characters with deep human understanding and needs, the needs of the religious the impulse toward worship. It's easy to dismiss the Greeks and their gods when we have our more advanced religions, but their human impulse to worship in a town that's emptied out is forever mysterious. We don't know what was in their minds and hearts other than we know that it was human, mysterious, and desolate. O attic shape, Fair attitude with breed of marble man and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed. Thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. 
going to stop there, right in the middle of the line. This attic, attic means Greek, of course. This attic shape with all these figures of men and maidens and branches and trodden weed. This silent form doth tease us out of thought as doth eternity. You hear that? I feel justified. I feel justified. This is Keats giving us the clue. This isn't just a powerful piece of pottery. It's not just what the visual arts can do. It teases us out of thought. It helps us to feel the truth, even if we can't logically discern it. That's point number one. As doth eternity. That's point number two. We look at the Grecian urn and feel these things, this truth, this passage of time, everything we've been contemplating about the nature of life, the nature of happiness, the nature of love, the feelings of life and death. And it's powerful not just because a statue can make us feel this way, but because eternity can make us feel this way too. Eternity itself, the passage of time, the infinity of time, our own life, our own death, the lives and deaths of everything we know and everyone we know, contemplating that takes us out of our logical world too. It's vast, it's wide open, it's awesome, it's terrifying, it's sublime. The line continues. Cold pastoral, when our old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. And in my reading, the poet speaks to the cold pastoral, the urn itself, and says, Wow, look at you, urn. Look how powerful you are. You have unlocked the secrets of the universe, and you've done it in silence, and you've done it without saying a word. You've done it by being yourself, urn. And you've delivered a message, not just to us, but to everyone who came before and everyone who will come after. And your message will only get more powerful the longer you endure. And what is that message? What is that secret of the universe? It's that beauty is truth and truth is beauty, not facts. Don't confuse truth with facts. This isn't saying that facts are beautiful, although they might be. It's not saying that beautiful things are always factually true either. That's the other trap. It's saying what it says. Beauty is truth. The beautiful might be unspoken. It might be felt rather than understood, surrounding us rather than pinned down. It might not be the man on the table suffering, and it might not be the doctor making him suffer. It might be whatever invisible power takes that suffering from the man's flesh and puts it in the mind of the doctor. It might be the purity of a lover frozen in the moment before the kiss. It might be the beautiful world that dies, because everything dies, because time passes, because love fades, because we all disappear. It's the inspiration that rises out of the defeat, the heartbreak that rises out of the passion, the death that rises out of life, and the life that rises out of death. It's the poetry that rises out of the soul, and the soul that rises out of the poetry. It's the truth of the universe. It's the beauty, the truth and the beauty, the beauty and the truth. And that, says the urn, is all you know on earth. But look, that's all you need to know. It's what the urn tells us, just as it's what Keats tells us. It's the secret to everything. It's simple, it's mysterious, it's dazzling, and it's ours. Okay, there we go. John Keats, part one. That's a promise. (laughs) There's so much we didn't cover. Next time, we'll have the trip to Rome and Shelley and Byron and Jorge Luis Borges. We'll have Chapman's Homer, Shakespeare's Lear, Wordsworth and Coleridge, the loves of John Keats. We'll have more about the critical reception, the savage reviews, and the culmination of all of this in one of the greatest poems ever written, Ode to a Nightingale. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature. By the way, we have a new announcement. We're going to be putting some new content up for our patrons, some bonus material. So sign up now for a small monthly contribution, if you haven't already. If you have, stay subscribed, and ye shall receive the bounty sometime in the next few weeks. I hope I'll have more on that later. That's patreon.com slash literature. That's going to do it for this episode of Keats. I made it all the way through without using the word feign. I guess I've gotten that out of my system, thankfully. A clean break from feign. A feign flush. We'll be back soon with some Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and some more Keats and some more Mike Palindrome, who has been busy reading Edith Wharton and John Steinbeck. Our list is long, our days are short. And the space between us, between you and me, my listening friends, between my voice and your brain, is both infinite and infinitesimal. And that's all ye know on Earth and all ye need to know, at least for now. I'm Jack Wilson. Wait, why am I telling you this? I've given you all ye need to know. I'm no one in particular. I'm a disembodied voice. Thank you for listening. Not that you need to know that. And we'll see you next time. Not that you need to know that either. <laughs>